0: Hello and welcome to the September edition of Rich Pickings, Fidelity's asset allocation podcast. I'm Richard Edgar, Editor-in-Chief, and this month I'm back in the Church of St Mary Alder Mary, a place for contemplation and happily restoration by coffee from the shop at the back. I'm going to put my cappuccino to one side because in this month's podcast we delve deeper into data that suggests the slowdown in the global economy may be about to bottom out. How emerging markets might knock that sunny picture and why Australia is better than New Zealand. Oh, yes, indeed. Listen on to find out why. Joining me in the studio are three of the multi-asset team back from their summer break and already deep into their asset allocation wrangling. They are Charlotte Harrington, markets analyst. Charlotte, this month I want to know, before we get going, what's your most irrational fear?
1: You can say heights, which, although that is not totally irrational, it does become irrational when you're in a, a hotel room, say, and you can't put the curtains, open the curtains for fear of looking out the window.
0: It does sound slightly <laughs> odd. Good to know. Also with us is Portfolio Manager Matt quaif Matt, what nonsense gives you goosebumps?
1: Well, I am really like
2: being rational, so I don't really have an irrational fear, but I, I have this very irrational thing of after i go snowboarding i dream about it and i wake myself up because every time i fall over in the dream i actually jump out of bed uh, to the point where my wife now won't sleep in the same bed so as me house. perhaps this after should be your
0: wife's rational fear of you going snowboarding <laughs> that's exactly that's, it. Good. that's exactly <laughs> uh, also my third guest as always is james bateman chief investment officer of the multi-asset team james what's your most irrational fear
3: Well, I guess I would never admit it was irrational, but um, I'm not a big fan of spiders. But since some can kill you, um, not completely irrational, as I say, and certainly preclude certain um, geographic
0: areas for, for holidays. Absolutely. That sounds eminently sensible to me. But um, before we get going let's hear quickly how the group decided to position itself this month. Has there been any change to the multi-asset allocation?
3: Well I'm sorry to disappoint you Richard but the answer is no. Um, Remind re- us where we are. We then. retain our positioning which is neutral equities, overweight cash, underweight fixed income. We did have a bit of a debate whether we should actually neutralise our cash and fixed income positions as
0: well. So you'd be neutral but, on everything. We,
3: well, yeah, But, but you, know, you cannot change your positioning without passing through neutral and, and at the margin we will probably over the next few months be reducing cash and increasing fixed income so that would just be a path to a move that we know we're going to likely to make.
0: Good you set us up for it um, very well. Um, Charlotte did you agree with um, where we ended up?
1: I think uh, broadly I'm probably a bit more risk averse than that, so I'd probably prefer to hold a bit more duration and and be a bit less positive on on the equity market, Um, largely because of just the fundamentals, but also because within the equity market uh, it's really been the US versus the rest and uh, and that sort of convergence looks like it's uh, possible.
0: And Matt, how are you? Uh, Are you aligned with the rest of the group? No, I'm closer to Charlotte and probably mainly on the
2: bond side of things. Um, I I, I like holding some duration here. Essentially, the logic that I apply is if you put a recession at any point in the next 10 years, 3% looks pretty good on a US 10-year. And therefore, I'm willing to hold it.
0: Brilliant. Well, um, for a bit more detail on the numbers uh, in that discussion, I caught up with the markets analyst uh, Ian Sampson and asked him about Fidelity's leading indicator, the fly. It's been stuck in the negative and worsening quadrant for six months in a row, exactly where you don't want it to be. But he explained that the bottom of this cycle isn't yet here, but maybe near.
2: Welcome to the Fidelity conferencing system. Please enter the conference ID followed by hash.
4: I wouldn't quite say they've reached the bottom, but you can see on our cycle tracker that the momentum of that negative signal is, is beginning to fade out. There is some sense of stabilisation. Now, I always caution not to read too much into this, but given that the Fidelity Leading Indicator is designed to lead growth by about three months, that negative deceleration seems to be bottoming out. Perhaps around the turn of 2019, we might be talking about actually things stabilising. Now, what could drive that economically? Well, we've always said that there hasn't been a significant enough macroeconomic shock, uh, given how strong growth was last year, to really move us from... Uh, mid-cycle, late-cycle, into actual recessionary territory, there's n- no real candidate for, for why that should happen. So stabilisation, I think, was always something we expected, um, and it's something that, that it looks like we're getting a bit closer to. So we've
0: been sort of teetering um, on the brink, if you like, for, for a number of months, but it suggests that perhaps
4: um, the world is becoming a safer place, economically speaking. What could knock that, though, Ian? Sure. Well, it has to be emerging markets um, right at the crosshairs of slowing Chinese growth, uh, Fed tightening in a stronger dollar um, and more idiosyncratic blowups are starting to see in, in the really vulnerable emerging markets, the likes of Turkey. And, Argentina. and um, when you say idiosyncratic you mean that uh, the conditions there are unique to
0: those individual economies and not the sort of thing that might spread like wildfire through other countries?
4: Sure. The, the conditions there are so much worse than they are in other emerging markets in terms of current account deficits, uh, external indebtedness. Um, so much worse that we don't think you can extrapolate from there to India, Indonesia, uh, even, you know, Mexico. Um, So while these countries, we believe, will stay under pressure, still it doesn't feel like we're reaching an existential risk uh, stage quite yet. Please state your name after the tone. That was Ian Sampson. Well, Charlotte, back in the studio here.
0: um, Do you agree with his assessment?
1: I think uh, on emerging markets specifically, there's been, obviously, that's been where the action's been all all year. So we've seen the currency, the equity market and the fixed income market all sell off quite aggressively. Uh, And as Ian says, it's been down to a stronger dollar, the the Fed tightening and and Chinese uh, growth and also trade tensions with the US. So whilst the move has been quite aggressive, um, the conditions uh, that had sort of, formed the backdrop for that move are are probably largely in place, uh, particularly on the China side of things where, yes, they are starting to to, uh, stimulate the economy, but we're a long way from really seeing the the data change off the back of that.
0: And uh, James, Ian explained how uh, the conditions in Turkey and Argentina are unique at least to some degree, if you can be that. Um, But what about the other countries? What about this idea of contagion? Where should we be looking um, and and be much more concerned about?
3: Sure. So I think, you know, you're right to ask the question, Um, whenever, whenever you see an issue in a country, is it systemic? Is it or is it idiosyncratic? So is it something that could ex- export and apply lots of other places, or is it contained to that country or that region? And I think when we look at Turkey, we don't see it um, structurally as a systemic issue. We don't think it's something that would, is likely to impact all emerging markets, and actually, therefore, we think to an extent that the negative sentiment around emerging markets has been overdone. Um, you know, maybe the, the, the other area of risk that we haven't talked about is in terms of countries is Brazil. Brazil clearly has a tumultuous political situation, and I don't think anything will be the next Turkey, but, but I why, think they, why there are some. Does Brazil matter more than Argentina? It's a larger part of the market um, with, with a lot of um, pretty much household name stocks.
1: I think what's interesting about this, though, is that although we might identify places like Turkey as um, being less systemic, actually. The sell-off in EM has been very broad-based. So we're seeing it in Indonesia, we're seeing it in India, uh, all these places that are supposedly in a in a better s- situation. Uh, so it's it's hard to really to draw a line. So it's not I, a
0: rational response, perhaps, but the mood is changing around well, emerging well, markets. I think I
2: think there's actually three levels to it. So one is, um, is it purely idiosyncratic, um, or is it systemic? But the the way that we described it before is has that idiosyncrasy. Going to affect everything else, but actually, the pockets of, of issues you see in EM have an underlying systemic um, element to it. I.e., US dollar liquidity, the um, the tightening of, um, of of monetary policy in the US, and um, the 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 fact that that puts it it kind of is it makes the tide go out. Yeah, if that's you will,
1: exactly, it. it's sort of leapfrogging fro- from one event to the other, but actually, um, everything is. Might might not have the particular story of the day, but everything's moving in that direction. And it is this global backdrop of of slower growth and and a stronger dollar.
0: And in fact, um, the US seems to be steering a lot of that. You've already raised that, Matt. But um, can you explain a little bit more, Charlotte, about why America matters so much at the moment?
1: Uh, well, from an equity perspective, it's obviously a very large part of the index. Uh, from a fundamental perspective, uh, the, the US set monetary conditions to, to a large extent for a lot of the world. And so this uh, gradual pace of normalisation, as the, as the Fed would put it, is, is starting to tighten policy, not just in the US, but also elsewhere.
0: The Fed has the same data that everyone else has. So what's the interpretation that everyone else seems to be hoping the Fed is going to be putting on that data?
1: Yeah, it's interesting. So the Fed I think have uh laid out their their plan if you like at the beginning of this year which was to to hike rates towards neutral which they estimate to be about 2.75 to 3% uh, and then take a pause. I don't see a huge amount to really change that view at the moment. Um I think it's entirely possible that US growth slows a bit from here and that that rate hike path still ends up in, in the same place, but perhaps slows in terms of the pace. Maybe you skip a quarter or, or, or whatever. Um, but but that would be the, the sort of the interpretation on the FMC.
2: But just to go t- take uh, Charlotte's point a little bit further, um, you, the Fed is essentially setting monetary policy for 70% of the world. You know, commodities, financial systems, a lot of them all, all depend on it. But the Fed's mandate isn't that. The Fed's mandate is domestic. And so what what you're seeing to a certain degree is this um, disconnect between financial markets and the actual mandate of the Fed. And you'd need um, either for that uh, domestic picture to change or for that uh, other picture in the rest of the world to affect the domestic picture for the Fed to really take note of it and change their course because of it.
0: But uh, if no man is an island, then the Fed might realise that um, its own economy is going to be affected um, if the policy that it sets affects the rest of the world. And
2: this is this is a subject that gets wrestled with a lot and there are different opinions on it. And, and um, I think that's where it comes down to some personalities within the Fed and how they interpret that. But I think they would really... Um, have to interpret it as it's going to affect the domestic economy, and therefore we're we're, we're going to do this. But th- it, this is this is the thing with with monetary policy. It's it's, it's um, it, it it hasn't necessarily been set in a time when it, when the, the Fed has been so dominant to financial markets. So I think we're going to have to slightly see what see what comes. at this how point. exciting. Make a couple yeah. of
1: observations as well on that. Is that firstly that there is evidence that the interest rate sensitive parts of the economy. Are being impacted by higher interest rates, so housing, vehicle sales, these are rate sensitive and and they're slowing. Uh, on the other point, around the the FOMC being being quite balanced, I think I think that's absolutely right. And one of the issues for them is that you've had a boost from tax cuts, uh, which which we know is, is is temporary and likely to fade, and and that makes their job all the more difficult because they don't want to over tighten uh, into a picture that ultimately is going to slow on its own accord uh, uh, and so i think that that adds an extra twist to all of this
0: and quite a short-term uh, twist as well because we expect that stimulus to run out by the end of next year
1: by the end of next year which is uh, when you think of the leads and lags in, in policy making and, and you're trying to set policy well, because you late. think it'll impact the next year you know that sort of explains why why they possibly set on the more cautious side
0: Okay, well, that's the way that policy is being decided. That, of course, um, affects the U.S. economy. But the biggest driver in the American economy um, is its consumers. Um, how healthy are they? I mean, it, it looks to be booming at the moment, James.
3: Indeed, it does, Richard. And I think you know what's interesting is is that that both anecdotally and and in the data, consumer confidence is very strong. Um, And and what our um, on-the-ground equity analysts have seen recently is the ability of uh, corporates to push through price increases. So actually they're regaining pricing power, consumers are um, continuing to spend, which is obviously a a very strong sign for the economy. And indeed, I think some of our um, internal estimates are suggesting that maybe we're pushing out the downturn another year in the US economy. So that's pretty major. I think the related point to that, though, coming back to the Fed and monetary policy, is is clearly that um, if if firms feel they have pricing power, um, that's a sign of further inflation to come. And, okay. and so- we'll,
0: we'll come to inflation in just a moment. The, the other thing that perhaps might undermine that rosier picture is um, not everybody is as convinced by the um, uh, future of the US economy, it seems. Um, if you start looking at capital expenditure, capex, uh, that Companies say they're going to invest, but seem to be sitting on that cash instead.
3: So there, there are unquestionably high cash reserves. So that's been a phenomenon in the, in the US market for a long time. The interesting point that, that one of the up analysts made this morning to us was that it's, it's getting harder to distinguish between CAPEX and OPEX, and particularly in tech spending. Um, and therefore actually looking at the headline numbers might be giving you the wrong impression of what companies are actually doing.
0: So they are spending, you think?
3: Companies are definitely spending, they're definitely investing. We we, we might question whether it's enough, we might question whether there's, there's an element of caution with some companies, but at the same time, um, I think you'd, you'd, you'd find it hard to build a narrative that said U.S. companies are acting cautiously and worrying about an imminent downturn.
0: They're not worried. But um, I interrupted you earlier when you wanted to talk about inflation. You're famously worried about inflation. Are we now entering a time when your fears come true?
3: I think my, con- my concern is increasing. Um, and it actually, is, as we discussed um, last week in a, in a separate conversation um, when I was at university, one of the, the, the books required reading at the start was The Death of Inflation by Boodle. By and ever since then, it struck me as a bit naive that inflation is over as a concept. Um, and we've just seen an unusually long period where the, the sort of move to central and bank independence in the 1990s and, and benign or negative economic conditions um, have combined to mean that the inflation hasn't hasn't really reared its head it's likely to again it's most likely to when people aren't expecting it and i think there's still an element of naivety in the market about about inflation and, and you know you're getting wage inflation you're getting price inflation and you've got the impact of oil you put all of those together and you say this feels like the precursor for above target inflation and inflation surprises
0: uh, it doesn't feel like a uh, a country in any way worried about these things at the moment, does it, the US?
1: No, the US aren't behaving as if uh, there's an inflation problem per se, but I think it is uh, likely that inflation continues to, to grind up in the environment that we're in. Uh, I think what's really stark about the inflation picture overall is how much it's been impacted by commodity prices, so the pickup in oil eventually feeding through from headline and into core inflation. Uh, and uh, and so whilst it might not be the kind of wage generated inflation that that would worry the Fed, uh, it, it is it's it still is inflation, evidence.
0: people feel it.
1: Yeah, and actually, uh, if you look at real wages going back to the US consumer, real wages are, are, are not looking so healthy because uh, the pace of wage increases uh, is is being eroded by that inflation picture
0: okay well we're almost at the end now which means it's time to play hot cakes and hot potatoes. What would you buy like a hot cake what would you drop like a hot potato Charlotte what are your hot cakes?
1: I'm going to say uh, the utility sector within the equity market uh, it tends to do well when um, rates fall but it also does well when the equity market, tanks tanks as well Uh, so if you had that environment in which rates actually spiked causing the equity sell-off then i think utilities would still do quite well in that and your hot potato Uh, well i may as well make it a sector trade so i'm going to say the consumer discretionary sector uh, it has always underperformed in in late cycle uh, and actually this optimism around the strength of the u.s consumer is a little bit worrying given all the other uh, things that we're seeing in terms of that disposable income that I I mentioned uh, and, and these interest rate sensitive sectors.
0: OK, something to watch. Uh, Matt, what are your hot cakes? What do you really like well, at the moment?
2: Given given I made a reference to snowboarding earlier, I'm going a bit off-piste um, with uh, Australian dollar versus uh, uh, the New Zealand dollar, so Aussie versus Kiwi. Why is that? Um, we've, you can see quite a large divergence in um, confidence in the economy in, in surveys um, between the two. Um, and generally, this uh, divergence of the economy implies that that cross should, could, should should uh, should go in the benefit of Australia.
0: And to continue your snowboarding theme, what would be the wipe out? What's your, uh, your hot potato? <laughs>
2: yeah, the wipeout. My hot potato is uh, US high yield. Uh, it's been having a great time because of the tax cut, because the US is doing so well but it's been completely immune to everything else that's going on and it just feels like the area that could go wrong um, if other things go wrong.
0: Okay, all downhill from here. So, uh, James, uh, finally we come to you. Uh, your hot cakes... My hot cake is um, somewhat
3: controversially com- compared to probably some of my colleagues' views, um, Asian emerging markets. I think um, sentiment's beaten them up too much. They are structurally undervalued, um, and actually, typically, the currencies are fallen as well. So, if you pick up the currency, you've got a potential for double rebound.
0: Right, uh, quite a quite a spiky spiky one there. What about your hot potato?
3: So I think my my hot potato is Europe, and and, 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 and I'll I'll explain in a second. But but has been for a while. Though, it, it has, but it's been in a slightly different way. I'm slightly worried that there's an upside potential from a Brexit deal, so I'm I'm off the European equity market um, as a as a hot potato because it could bounce. Um, but I'm really worried about European corporate debt, um, simply because um, when, when the macroeconomic picture isn't great and continues not to be great, Brexit isn't a structurally structural improvement there. Um, So you can only get a sentiment bounce in equities. It's not, not, as I say, it's not structural. Um, And therefore, I'm worried about um, declining
2: fortunes for European corporates starting being priced into the fixed income market. And the ECB stepping away at the end of the year.
0: Yeah. Absolutely. And on that happy note, uh, I'm afraid we're out of time. I hope that's given you an insight into the thinking behind this month's asset allocation. If you'd like more detail, it's published in full on our website. And if you'd like to discuss anything we've covered, just ask your Fidelity contacts. Thanks very much to my guests, Charlotte, Matt, James and Ian. And thank you to you for listening. We'll be back next month. But for now, goodbye.